This message was presented at the GYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good afternoon, GYC. It is a wonderful privilege to be with you this afternoon. Would you please join me in prayer? I will kneel. You may stay seated. Our Lord God and Heavenly Father, you are our God and we praise you. We thank you for Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us in this plenary session. We pray that you would speak through your humble servant and that you and only you would be glorified. We pray that the Holy Spirit would give us hearing and comprehension, but even more important than comprehension, we pray that the Holy Spirit would give us conviction, conviction of what it is that you have to say to us this Sabbath afternoon. We pray this in Jesus' precious and lovely name. Amen. I am the son of Korean immigrants. I'm an elder brother. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a former professional cellist. And I'm a corporate executive. Yet, as important and as defining each of these things is, each of these facts is to who I am and my identity. There is one fact that is more important than any of these facts to who I am, what I am today. And that is that I am the survivor of a chronic and deadly disease. It is a disease that affects millions around the world. It, is a, it runs in families and is passed on through generations. It is a silent killer. There is no known cure for this disease absent a literal miracle from the Lord Himself. I am a survivor of congenital Christianity. Congenital Christianity is a spiritual condition. It is in many ways similar to Seventh-day Adventist Christianity. But it lacks one thing. It is at its core superficial. And it lacks an authentic, saving relationship with Christ. Some of you may be suffering from this very condition. And in order to help you self-diagnose, I'd like to share with you a non-comprehensive list of potential symptoms you might observe. Are you ready for the symptoms? Do you want to know what they are? Very well. One, you avoid talking about your faith at work or at school because you're not quite sure what, believe, what you believe and you're a little embarrassed. Two, you know that Saturday is the Sabbath, but what's the big deal? It's just a day. Three, you've heard that we have distinctive biblical beliefs 
about death, hell, and the sanctuary, but you have no idea what they are and why they matter. Four, you hear people refer to the spirit of prophecy, but you're ambivalent about it, even though you've never actually read any of the books. Five, those beasts on the prophecy seminar flyer look strange and bizarre to you, and you've got no clue what they mean. Six, you think that megachurch down the street is a lot more fun and a lot more interesting, but you feel sort of bad that you think that. Seven, you abstain from all unclean meats, except for pepperoni, bacon, and shrimp because they taste so good. Amen? Don't say amen to that. You abstain from all alcohol, except for a little beer and wine socially. Oh, well, and the hard stuff only mixed with orange juice or cranberry juice because then you can't taste it. And if you can't taste it, it's not there. Eight, you dutifully wait until sundown on Sabbath before you head to the theater to see Twilight in IMAX 3D. Amen. You go out to lunch after Sabbath church service because surely God does not want you to starve. And those garlic breadsticks are so much yummier than what they got at Potluck. Ten. This is the last one. You go to church or Sabbath school most weeks but you go because you want your kids to have exposure, even though you don't have any personal conviction or investment in the faith. These are just examples, but they should give you an idea of what we're talking about. Does any of this sound familiar? Of course not you. This is GYC, right? Of course not you. But maybe a friend or a family, or a family member or another church member you've observed. Maybe the head elder. Well, I have good news and I have bad news. Which do you want first? I think the bad has it. So we'll go with the bad news first, which is what I was planning to do anyway. <laughs> Amen. The bad news is that untreated congenital Christianity leads to eternal death 100% of the time. The bad news is that while the disease is passed down, the cure is not. You cannot be saved by your parents' faith or the faith of anyone else. The bad news is that you must affirmatively choose to be cured. It won't just get better. You can't walk this off. That's the bad news. Who wants the good news? Amen. The good news is that there is a cure, and I stand before you as living proof, a congenital Christianity survivor. I testify to you that I have been cured of this disease by the love of Jesus and the power of the everlasting gospel. Amen. The good news is, is that if God could save a wretch like me, he can surely save you. And the good news is, is that it's not too late. It's not too late for you. Even if you have been suffering under the putrefying malaise 
lukewarmness of congenital Christianity for years or even decades, it is not too late for you. God can still reach down from His throne, touch your heart, and turn your heart from a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. I know that He can do this because He did it for me. My story begins three generations ago. In the early 1900s, when my great-grandfather was the second-ever ordained Seventh-day Adventist pastor in Korea. Amen. His son, my grandfather, also entered the ministry, and he became the first native Korean to be the president of the Korean Union Conference. Amen. His son, my father, did not go into the ministry, but he attended Adventist schools all his life, until he went to one of the top medical schools in Korea where he scored number one on the medical board exams that year, all the while observing Sabbath in a country which required attending class on Saturdays. Amen. And that's where I come in. Because I was, I was four months old when my mother, my father, two suitcases and a baby showed up in Boston for his residency. So while I am a 1.5 generation Korean American, I am a fourth generation Seventh-day Adventist. My roots in the faith go all the way back to its earliest days in Korea. And while many blessings come from having this heritage in the church, it comes with a predisposition to congenital Christianity. My earliest spiritual memory comes from when I was four years old. I would come downstairs early on Sunday mornings to watch television while my parents slept. And it didn't take me long to notice that every channel I turned to, actually we didn't have remote controls back then, I'm that old. Every channel I turned to, and we didn't have cable, we only had rabbit ears, I'm that old. Every channel I turned to, it didn't have cartoons. Has anyone ever heard of Sunday morning cartoons? Nope. What do you have on Sunday mornings? You have church services, right? So every channel I turned to had church services. And even at the age of four, I thought, are they confused? What, what day is this? This is, why, why are they going to church on Sunday? And after a little while of this, I decided I would ask my mother, and so my four-year-old feet walked to the kitchen where my mother was doing the dishes. And she was a very busy young mother of a four-year-old and a two-year-old. And I said to her, Amma, which means mommy in Korean. I said, Amma, why are all these people going to church on Sunday? Don't they know that Saturday is the Sabbath? Now, before I tell you what she said, I need to clarify something. I thank the Lord for my mother's faith. Amen? She is a Bible worker. She is a church planter. She is an evangelist amongst the Korean immigrant community. But at the time of this, she was at a different place in her spiritual walk. And so I said to her, Amma, why are these people going to church on Sunday, not on Sabbath? And she said to me, I don't know. And left it at that. Now, I don't know why she said that. Maybe she was just too busy, right? Mother of two, four-year-old and a two-year-old, known to be busy. 
Maybe she was too busy, she didn't want to take the time to explain it to me. Or maybe she thought I was too young to understand a fuller explanation. I don't know what the reason was, but what I do know is that I left that conversation scratching my head. I was utterly confused, and I thought if my mother doesn't know, who knows? One of the primary risk factors for congenital Christianity is confusion. From my earliest childhood experience, I was confused about what we believed and I did not receive the instruction in the home. Parents and future parents, this is why the Lord in His divine wisdom told us in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up, which is Bible language for all the time. Amen. If you leave your children confused, even when they're in beginners or kindergarten, you increase their risk of congenital Christianity. You might think that they're too young to understand. You might think that they're not paying attention, but they are paying attention and they are watching you and they are listening to you more than you know. And even from these early formative years, you have the opportunity to give them the vaccine of a soundly biblical age-appropriate foundation for their faith. Amen. The ensuing years of my childhood and adolescence read like a classic textbook case of congenital Christianity. In the sixth grade, I was pulled out of the Adventist schools for two reasons. Reason number one, the excessive PDAs on the part of the high school kids at the co-located academy. I don't mean iPhones. I mean public displays of affection. And it had gotten to the point where my parents felt that it was not an appropriate place for their sixth grader and their fourth grader to be at school. Reason number two, the academics were not as challenging as I needed. I must admit that I was getting bored, even at that age. And so my parents took me out and they put me in the public school starting in sixth grade, which was actually quite good for me academically. But my faith was assaulted from all sides continually. Specifically, my faith was under assault from the curriculum, the extracurriculars, and the peer pressure. We'll talk about each one. Let's talk about the curriculum. The curriculum was 100% secular and humanistic. From biology to English literature, I was exposed to the breadth of worldviews in which humanism was glorified and God was torn down. Now, don't get me wrong. I presented a seminar this week on witnessing to the wealthy, worldly, and well-educated. And as a missionary to these people, we need to understand their mindset and understand their culture. We need to be able to speak that language. But exposure to these worldviews can be dangerous if we are not firmly grounded in the reality of God and the truth of His Word. Amen. By beholding, you become changed. And if all you are beholding is Darwin, Kant, Rousseau, and Richard Dawkins, and you're not beholding Moses, Daniel, John, and Paul, and the others, then you will be changed. Best case, you set yourself up for confusion and doubt. Worst case, you'll set yourself up for apostasy or even atheism. So that was the curriculum. 
But beyond the curriculum were the extracurricular activities, whether sports, clubs, arts, or academics. It seemed everything conflicted with the Sabbath. Amen? If, it's not con- if you're in a public school and this stuff is not conflicting for you, you need to listen to the rest of this message. It seemed that everything conflicted with the Sabbath, and I struggled greatly with these conflicts because my unconverted heart wanted to achieve much in the world. And I thought the way to achieve much in the world was to receive the validation of the world rather than relying on the mighty right arm of the Lord. In my case, I was gaining some success as a cellist. I was one of the best in the state of California. And I was considering cello performance as a profession. And one of the ways that you develop a track record in music performance is the competition circuit. But time after time after time, I had to decline participation because all of these competitions were on the Sabbath. It was a difficult, excruciating struggle in my teenage mind. And this struggle was compounded by the fact that individuals in our own Seventh-day Adventist church were encouraging me to compromise. By the way, we should not find it strange that Satan would use the world to make it difficult for us to keep the Sabbath. There was a sweet older woman. She was one of the pillars of our local church, and she was a strong supporter of the local music scene. She knew of my talent as well as my struggles. I will never forget one Sabbath afternoon when she pulled me aside and she told me it would be okay. It would be okay if I competed. Because two reasons. One, I'd be playing good classical music. And that's another sermon. Two, <laughs> two, because I'd be glorifying God with my talent. And so she said it would be okay. I'm convinced that she meant well. But this well-intentioned church member was causing even more confusion for me and setting me up for compromise and ultimately full-blown congenital Christianity. We would do well to recall Jesus' words in Matthew 18, verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him or her if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Church family, you don't have to be blood-related to someone to inflame their congenital Christianity. You can even be a well-meaning church member, but be careful, because you may make yourself a contributing factor to someone else's congenital Christianity, and Lord have mercy on you if you do that. So we've talked about the curriculum and how it undermined my faith. We've talked about the extracurriculars and how they created conflict in my heart. But the third factor, the most powerful and potent factor, was the peer pressure. Beginning in the sixth grade, through my peers, I was exposed to the range of filth and wickedness that we unfortunately consider a normal part of growing up. Between the school bus, the sleepover, the field trip, the cafeteria, the popular media, and various and sundry other settings, wherever I turned, Satan was there to teach me 
what was pleasurable and desirable and required for social standing and required for emotional fulfillment and for physical gratification and ultimately happiness. I'm being a little bit delicate because this is a G-rated sermon. But I hope you understand what I mean. In fact, from all I can gather from the news and the media today, it is even worse. Not a day goes by that I don't see another sensational, salacious news story about what some young people did and who they did it to and when they did it to them and where and how often in the locker room, behind the cafeteria, in the dorm, on Facebook, with a cell phone or with a webcam. Of course, there are exceptions. There are exceptions. But for every person who has managed to handle the onslaught of peer pressure and emerge unscathed, an untold multiple of that number see, hear, touch, taste, smell, images, media, substances, and have myriad experiences which leave deep mental, emotional, and even physical scars which will haunt them for the rest of their lives. There are many of you right here in this hall who know exactly what I'm talking about. You've been there. You've done that. And you walk through life bearing the resulting guilt and shame of what you've been through. Satan uses these emotions and these experiences to make you wonder if God is even there. He uses these experiences to make you wonder if God is even there and if He's there, if He cares. Or if He cares whether He is even capable of delivering you from this body of death. Satan infiltrates your mind and your thinking and he may even push you to the point where you would wish that God did not even exist. Because if God did exist, as the Bible says, and if he were as pure and as holy and as righteous as, a, as the Bible says, then you would be certainly destined for eternal death. And so you say to yourself, and Satan puts this thought in your mind, that if God doesn't exist, then I'm okay, and you choose that point of view. It is with this mindset that I limped my way through high school. All of this hurt, shame, conflicted emotion hidden beside a facade, behind a facade of perfect grades, musical accolades, and admission to world-class schools like Stanford University and the Eastman School of Music. I was chasing the world, and I was doing very well by its standards. But all the while, I was ambivalent toward God. I was resentful toward His church. And I was completely spiritually ungrounded, cast adrift in a sea of worldliness and secularism. Against this backdrop, I went off to Eastman. And as any new college freshman, I was looking for affiliation. I was looking for belonging. And one of the places I looked for this was at the local chapter of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Of course, there wasn't an Adventist group on campus. Of course, there wasn't one. And I was so glad to hear what Elder Wilson said this morning about that. And I thank the Lord for the ground that has been, the path that has been laid by campus ministries in Michigan. Amen. So there wasn't an Adventist group, but it didn't matter to me because I didn't know any better. I didn't know the difference. 
I just thought we were like evangelicals, but we kept the Sabbath. I will never forget the first Bible study I attended. There were about 10 of us there. It was led by a senior, a French horn player. His name was Drew. And we went around the circle and we all said, name, where you're from, what you're studying, and something about your spiritual background. So when it came to my turn, a dialogue ensued and it sounded something like this. Hi, my name is David Kim. I'm from San Luis Obispo, California, and I'm here studying cello performance. And my spiritual background is um, a Seventh-day Adventist, my family's Seventh-day Adventist. And so Drew then said to me, oh, you're a Seventh-day Adventist, huh? Well, why is that? And I said, well, my family's Seventh-day Adventist, and you know, I also think it's pretty clear from the Bible that Saturday is the, is the day of worship, is the Sabbath. And Drew said, hmm, well, okay, well, how about Colossians 2.16? And I looked at him blankly and I said, oh, you're going to have to refresh my memory about that. What, what do you mean Colossians 2.16? <laughs> so Drew said, well, let's look it up. Let's look it up and let's read it together. So I, I took my Bible out and I, I, was, I knew enough to know that Colossians was in the New Testament. You know, go eat popcorn. <laughs> go eat popcorn. Colossians 2.16. So we turned to it. And so I started reading. Okay, I'll, I'll read this. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths? D does your Bible say Sabbaths? I will ne never forget that moment. Drew says to me, right. So by being so focused on keeping the law, you guys are just being legalists. Jesus freed us from the law. I'll never forget that moment. I was mortified. I'd never seen that verse in my life. I was completely at a loss as to what to think. You would think that someone who grew up in our church would understand the difference between ceremonial Sabbaths and the Sabbath of the fourth commandment. And if you don't understand what I just said, go talk to your pastor. Amen. But as you've just heard, I did not learn about these things growing up, and so I felt confused, betrayed, and humiliated. I went, never went back to that Bible study, and I stopped going to church. My congenital Christianity had metastasized, and I was checking out. I never gave up on the idea of God, but I had no idea who He was. I had no idea what to believe. I had no idea what church was the right one. I was spiritually bewildered, and so I left. The next 14 years were a blur. I was in hot pursuit of worldly success, and I was succeeding. Over that period of time, I earned a bachelor's and a master's degree in cello performance from top schools with full scholarships. I performed all over the world at some of the most prestigious venues under some of the great conductors and orchestras. I earned an MBA from one of the top programs in the world. I worked at some of the most prestigious companies in all of capitalism, and I married my beautiful wife and had two children. I felt like I had achieved the American dream. I didn't have a white picket fence, but I had a solar-heated swimming pool. I'll take the pool. Over the years, the Lord had drawn me back into the church. I married my wife in the church while we lived in Chicago, and I was even serving as an elder when we went out to California. But I was not yet heart converted. I was still just as confused about our message as ever. My theology and my lifestyle were a mess. The outside of the cup and dish were clean, 
but inside I was full of extortion and self-indulgence. I was like a whitewashed tomb which appeared beautiful outwardly, but inside I was full of dead bones and all uncleanness. On the outside I appeared righteous to men, but inside I was full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This period of my life was marked by an intense ambivalence toward God, Adventism, and Christianity. As far as I could tell, Seventh-day Adventists were evangelicals who went to church on Saturday. I was sticking to the Sabbath out of a desire to adhere to the Fourth Commandment, but I was bringing a completely legalistic mindset to it. On top of this, I had been diagnosed with a degenerative bone condition in both of my hips. I was suffering through multiple unsuccessful surgeries and I was in a lot of pain. For the greater part of 10 years, I walked with some combination of a limp, a cane, and crutches. I don't have them today, praise the Lord. Amen. As far as I could tell, God was leaving me alone to deal with this and I was angry at him. So I focused on worldly success, but I called it providing for my family because it sounded better. I didn't have personal devotions. I didn't study the Bible. I never talked about my faith because I didn't have any. We had family worship only inconsistently, only if I happened to come home early enough for the kids to still be up, which was rare. I was prideful, covetous, and ambitious for worldly things. God and church was something I did for my children, just in case it were true. But I was angry at God and consumed with the world. Yet through all of this, God was trying to reach me. There would be times at church when I would hear a song or a testimony or something in a sermon that would touch my heart and tears would come to my eyes. But then I would quickly wipe them away as inconspicuously as possible and hope that no one had noticed. In these moments, I knew that the Holy Spirit was working on my heart but I refused to yield to his promptings. I was still too proud, too angry, too consumed by the world, and I didn't know God, much less trust him. I didn't understand the Bible and its message. It didn't make any sense to me. I was congenitally Christian, but my heart was unconverted. In this spiritual context, I was sitting at a church board meeting. Yes, I was sitting on the church board as an elder. It was spring of 2008, and we were talking about putting on the first evangelistic series in over 10 years at that church. And the pastor was talking about the importance of every member attending all the meetings to support the meetings. And I remember thinking to myself, wait, five nights per week for five weeks? Really? I'll come on the weekend. And I'll write a check. Uh, hey, I'm all about writing the check. But, but I'm not going to come during the week when I'm so busy with work. You just heard how busy I, I am with work. So there was no way that I was going to attend. Little did I know that God had different plans for me. Come November, instead of being busy with work, I had been told that I needed to find a new job which was a shock because only six months before I was doing great. But I'd been caught in the undertow of the great financial crisis of 2008, like so many others. So the bad news was that I had to look for a job during one of the worst financial crises in the history of economics. But the good news was that I had plenty of time to go to the meetings. <laughs> Amen. 
And I give thanks to God for that opportunity to hear the entire gospel message in a systematic way. There are actually two meetings. As Taj Pakleb and as Jeffrey Rosario unfolded the message step by step, night after night, I saw for the first time the logic, the coherence, and the reliability of the Bible and our gospel message. For the first time, I could cut through all the cliches involved with our Christian faith and see that the Bible can be trusted. I could see why an all-powerful and all-loving God would allow evil to exist for a season. I could understand the physics of salvation, who Jesus was, why he had to die, and what it has to do with me. I could see that God has given us prophecy to get us safely from here through eternity. If only we will read it. I could see that all the do's and don'ts that are associated with God and the Bible and even our health message are not because God is picky or arbitrary, but because he is trying to prepare us for the reality of life in his direct presence for all eternity. Amen. I could see that every word in his word is love intended to fit us for heaven and earth made new. For the first time, God was real to me because for the first time, he made perfect sense. Amen. I'll never forget how I felt sitting in that hall, looking up at the PowerPoint and realizing for the first time that the 70-week prophecy of Daniel chapter 9 perfectly pinpointed the beginning of Christ's ministry in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. Amen? If you don't know what I just talked about, go talk to your pastor. I had two immediate thoughts. My first thought was, wow, this is true. And my second thought was, well, if this is true, I better do something about it. And my life has never been the same. The Lord put me on the road to recovery, and I've never looked back. That next month was GYC San Jose. Amen for GYC. And I decided that I would take a step out into evangelizing. I decided to be a local bus guide. And I thought I could handle that because I wouldn't actually have to get off the bus and actually knock on a door. So I survived. I survived that experience intact, and I started to look for other witnessing and training opportunities. I attended AFCO to go, the four-day program, where I learned how to give personal Bible studies. And I accompanied my church's Bible worker, thank you, Ico, to follow up leads from GYC. On the job search front, God was faithful. In the worst job market in a generation, the Lord gave me not just one, not just two, not just three, not just four, not just five, but six excellent job opportunities. I had the pick of the litter. And that's what brought me to Philadelphia, where I live today. And as I embarked on a new job opportunity in a new place just over four years ago, it is almost as if God gave me a clean sheet opportunity to start over. And I purposed in my heart to be faithful to God in all aspects of my life, professional, personal, to bring my authentic faith to everything I do. 
and it has made all the difference. The Lord has been so faithful. He's blessed so richly. Let me describe to you some of the differences I've seen in my life. Not to bring glory to myself, but so you can see practical, tangible differences. I just told you what I was like, and now I'm going to show you what the Lord has done. Amen? Amen. I have a regular devotional life on a depth and consistency I've never had before. In particular, I am praying more than I ever have before. I used to pray like a minute, maybe. But now, as my walk with the Lord has deepened, I'll pray 30 minutes or more. Amen. Amen. Every morning. And I will pray without ceasing during the day as I go to my meetings and talk to people and, and see and interact. The Lord is teaching me how to praise Him like David did in the Psalms. The Lord is teaching me how to confess specific sins. Specific sins. So I have to confront every morning anew the wickedness in my heart and realize that I need a Savior. And He is showing me also that I'm gaining victory over sin because there are things I used to have to confess all the time which have sort of fallen off the radar. Praise the Lord. But there are also things which I used to have to confess all the time which I still have to confess all the time. But that shows us, that shows me what is most deeply seated in my heart. And it drives me to my knees. The Lord is teaching me how to pray for others. Intercessory prayer gets us out of our selfishness and into the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed for you and for me. God has given me the boldness to have spiritual conversations with everyone around me. I have a dozen or more of these every week with people at my work in my sphere of influence. These spiritual conversations have led to uh, Bible studies, personal Bible studies with a range of people from atheists to Buddhists to lawyers to MBAs to PhDs. The Lord has changed my family life. I used to rush out the door in the morning. You heard that, right? I told you that. And I'd stumble back in when the kids were asleep. But today we gather every morning for family prayer. And every evening we come together for family worship. The Lord has continued to deepen my appreciation for what it means to be a godly husband and father. He has taught me to pray every morning that I would love my wife as Christ loves the church, giving, being willing to give my own body for her and treating her as a member of my own body. God is so merciful and good. I'm so thankful that he got a hold of my heart while my children were still young. By his grace, my congenital Christianity will stop with me. I'm by no means perfect, but I'm better than I used to be. And by the grace of God, I'll be better every day, day by day, from faith to faith, and from glory to glory. The Lord is even using my musical talents in a completely new way. In my congenital Christianity, my music was a way to glorify myself and to feed my own ego. I considered doing special music a burden and beneath me. And when I would do it, I would play a classical piece to better showcase my abilities. Over the last few years, however, the Lord has been teaching me how to perform for His glory and not my own. Amen. The culmination of this process has been my involvement with an amazing recording project called The Lamb Wins. Amen. It is an epic musical journey through the book of Revelation. The songs take you chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the entire book of Revelation. It is textually rich, theologically powerful, culturally relevant, and eminently listenable, which is technical language for the, te the tunes are really catchy. 
God has revealed to me how much he's changed me through this project. This is the most gratifying musical endeavor I've ever been a part of because he has redeemed my musical talents from glorifying my carnal self to glorifying God. So what about you? Are you suffering from congenital Christianity? Is your religious experience dry and barren? Are you keeping up appearances at church while feeling empty inside? Do you feel as if your path in Christianity and in Adventism were predetermined for you by a genealogical heritage from your parents or your grandparents? Or perhaps you came later to the faith but you've lost your first love. I have good news for you. You too have the opportunity, indeed the obligation, to make your own decision for Christ. You cannot be saved by your parents' faith. You cannot be saved by your husband or your wife's faith. You cannot be saved by your graduating class. That Adventist school can give you a degree, but it cannot give you salvation. The choice is up to you. The cure is available to you. Jesus is waiting for you. He is at the door. He wants to come in. He wants to destroy the congenital Christianity coursing through your veins and replace it with the blood of Jesus. Jesus knows your heart. He knows your confusion, your hurt, your guilt, your shame, your resentments. He knows all these things, but He still wants you. You felt Him tugging at your heart this week. You felt the desire to respond to this precious gift. If only you could believe, if only you could see past whatever barrier is standing between you and your maker. If only you could believe that he can reach down and touch your heart and make it new, make you into a new creation. If this is you, if you've been hearing the messages and desiring to respond, if you've been suffering under the crushing burden of congenital Christianity but are ready to be changed, if you've been running away like the prodigal son, it is time to stop running. It is time to stop running and to stand up and come to the front to declare to the Lord that you're tired of running and that you want to be cured of your congenital Christianity and you want to trade it in for an authentic relationship with God. If this is you, stand up, come forward, and say to the Lord that you're tired of going through the motions. You're tired of pretending. Come forward right now if you're suffering from congenital Christianity. Come forward as we share this song and ask the Lord to reach down, to touch your heart, and to make it new to make all things new.
the bride, the wife of the Lamb, the tabernacle, God with man. No more tears or pain or death for Jesus says, because I made all things, I make all things new, and because I died and rose again, I can give new life to you. I have written you into my plan. I will finish all that I began. I can make a change when nothing can, and I make you suffering from congenital Christianity who's chasing the world who needs to come forward now is your time amen sister amen brother let us kneel as we approach the Lord in prayer Lord God, our Father, our Creator, our Redeemer, and the one who recreates us. We are but dust. You are God, but we forget so easily. We're so quick to chase after whatever bright and shiny object the world hangs before us. But Lord, We come before you because we want to change. We come before you because we don't 
want this congenital Christianity disease. Yet, Lord, you need us to do something. You need us to choose. And, Lord, you see us here. We've come forward as a token of our choice. And, Lord, I pray that each one of us would choose not only here and now, but every day, day by day, until we see Jesus himself break through the clouds with all of his glory, with all of his angels, to bring us home. Lord, we have made this choice. We give ourselves to you. And we pray for the revival and the recreation that you've promised us. We pray that you would make all things new. We trust in you. And we trust in Jesus. And we pray in his powerful and holy and his loving name. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.